Father God, we've just sung this. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Father, that's our prayer. We, we know often our thoughts and our attitudes are wrong. They need correcting. And we know that often we don't love you as we should do. So please fill us with wonder at what you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. It's rumoured that Joseph Stalin had a psychologist working for him. And apparently this psychologist had the ability to get anyone to confess to their crimes. And this psychologist, when you asked him, he put it down to something called the Mongolian peasant principle. Let me explain uh, this to you. Imagine uh, a poor peasant is ushered into an important-looking office. It's one of those uh, offices with mahogany walls, with a big oak desk, uh, one of those high leather-backed chairs. And sitting in the, uh, in the high leather-backed chair is an important-looking general, and he's got all these medals on his chest, frosty hair, looking stern. And this poor, shabby man, this peasant, is, is shown in and told to sit down in front of this desk. The general then leans forward and says to him, I have a million rubles in my desk. A million dollars, if you like. And they can all be yours. Now, this poor shabby man is amazed. Oh, wow, wow. How, how can I have this money? Well, all you have to do is press this red button on the desk here. Slightly confused. Well, why? What happens when I press the red button? Well, an old man in Mongolia will die. Why? What's he done? You don't need to know that. All you need to know is that when you press this red button, an old man will die and you can walk away with one million rubles. Now slowly, the poor, shabby, unimportant man, he thinks about it, he leans forward and he presses the red button. And he takes the money and he goes home. But for the rest of his life, he is haunted by guilt. He can't bring himself to spend a cent of his ill-gotten gains. He's tormented day and night, day and night, until the day when he dies of his guilt. And the million rubles are found in a sack underneath his bed. And at his funeral, the state come and pick him up and collect their money. According to Stalin's psychologist, everyone has a Mongolian peasant in their life. Everyone has done something for which they feel deep shame and horror. And what I do is I hunt around in their memory until I find it. And then once I've found that peasant, I dangle it in front of them until the person is writhing in shame at being such a wretched human being. And at that point, he will confess to all his crimes. The question we're asking tonight is what do you do with your guilt? I'm not talking about the, the feelings of guilt, which, you know, come and go, come and go. But your objective guilt before a holy, holy, holy God. What do you do with that? Some people ignore it, don't they? They ignore their guilt. A bit like you might ignore that, that sort of engine light on your car dashboard because you don't know what it does. So you just ignore that light. Some people ignore their guilt. Some people drown it out. 
They drown out their guilt by staying busy, or maybe they escape into alcohol or some sort of fantasy world or a novel or a box set. Some people drown it out. Others of us, maybe us here tonight, try and work off their guilt, a bit like a debt, but but through moral or or religious duties. What about you? What, What do you do with your guilt? Well, our passage today is a gripping courtroom drama. If you like John Grisham novels, you're going to like like tonight's passage. We've not been in Micah for a while now, so allow me to just catch us up up to speed. You might remember how God's people, Israel, they've turned away from God. They've turned to other idols, and they've turned to corruption. So what did God do? He sent the Assyrians to invade Israel and Judah, to, to wake them up, to get them to turn back to him. But instead of responding with repentance and contrition, what do they do? Well, it seems as if here in this passage, they turn to moral outrage. How can you do this, God? How can you let this happen to us? Don't you love us? You see, they're bringing a a complaint, if you like, about God's character. And here in chapter 6, the irony is that it's God who brings a legal complaint against them. So in this law court, God needs to do two things. He needs to vindicate himself. He needs to prove his own righteousness. But also he needs to establish his people's guilt. And he needs to do so beyond all reasonable doubt. First up, you'll see on your sheets. First up, let's hear of the Lord's righteousness. Please look down with me at verse 1 in your Bibles. Chapter 6 and verse 1. That's page 934 if you've closed your Bibles. Page 934. Micah 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now, like any good courtroom drama, the scene needs to be set, doesn't it? God is presented here as the plaintiff. He's there to clear his name. And Israel is there in the dock. Israel is the defendant. And notice how how the Lord calls up the prophet Micah to be his barrister, to be his lawyer. He starts to stand up and plead the Lord's case. And the jury, and this is where it gets a little bit weird, the jury is creation itself. That the most long-standing features of our world, the mountains and the foundations of the earth, they're there to, to bear witness to everything that has happened throughout history. They're the jury. So we've got a plaintiff, we've got a defendant, we've got a lawyer, and we've got a jury. Now, with the court now in motion, the Lord stands up to clear his name. So in verse 3, look down, you see this passionate and personal appeal to, to his people. Verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baal, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Three pieces of evidence are brought before the jury. They're sitting very patiently in their box. 
We'll call them exhibits A, B, and C. And each of these are pieces of evidence. They, they prove God's innocence, and they call into question Israel's doubts about God's goodness. Exhibit A from, uh, from verse 3 is God's redemption. You remember how with plagues and with miracles and, and, and the Passover lamb, God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Exhibit B is God's provision. How all along that desert journey, he gave Israel leaders like Moses, Aaron, Miriam, so they weren't wandering around the desert like aimless children lost in a supermarket. Exhibit C is God's protection. How every single enemy who stood up to attack Israel or try and curse them, a bit like Balak and Balaam in Numbers 22, it only ended up in blessing. Redemption, provision, protection. Now the jury, they're listening to exhibits A, B and C and, and that question is left hanging in the air. How have I burdened you? Or literally in the Hebrew, how have I bored you? Was the Exodus just not interesting enough for you to, to keep your attention on me? Was uh, my care for you in the desert not stimulating enough to, to keep you faithful to me? Was my protection of you so wearying that you'd rather not obey me? I wonder if this might be a word in season for some of us here tonight. I don't know, but maybe at the moment we're feeling a little bit like Jerusalem here, under siege by life's problems. Maybe our present difficulties are leading us to question God's goodness. Maybe, I don't know, perhaps like them in, in our frustration, we've begun to grow weary with the Lord, weary with the gospel, and we started looking elsewhere for redemption. And elsewhere for provision. And elsewhere for security and protection. Imagine if you would, it's the very end of time. And billions and billions of people are standing on this huge plain before God's judgment seat. Most people, are, they're, sh they're shrinking back from the blinding light at the front there. But, but there are some groups who are, who are arguing amongst themselves. And they're talking heatedly right at the front. Uh, one young man stands up. How can God judge us? He, he pulls back his sleeve to reveal a, a tattoo from a Nazi concentration camp. What can he possibly know about suffering? We endure terror, beatings, torture, death. There's another man there, an Afro-Caribbean boy, and he, he lowers his collar to reveal an, an ugly rope burn. What, God, what can God possibly know about what I've been through? I was lynched for a crime of being black. And all across this plane, there are hundreds of, of groups a, a bit like this. So each of them have a complaint against God for, for all the evil that he's permitted in his world. So each of these groups, they, they send forth a leader to, to speak for them. They're the people who, who suffered the most, there's a Holocaust victim, there's a, there's a woman with crippling arthritis, there's a Hiroshima, Hiroshima victim there. And in the center of the plane, they consult with one another. And after what seems like days and days and days, at last they're ready to present their case before God. And they declared that God is not able, he's not qualified to be their judge because he hasn't suffered. So in order to, to judge them, he must first suffer himself. One man shouts out, let, let him be born a Jew. Another person shouts out, let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Another person, let him have work so difficult that even his family think he's crazy. 
Uh, let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, uh, face a, a prejudiced trial by a corrupt judge. Let him be tortured. And at the last, let him die utterly alone. And as, as each person announces their judgment, uh, their sentence on God, loud cries of approval come from the crowds. But in the end, there's only silence. Because when the last sentence is pronounced, everyone realizes that God has already done it. As compelling as exhibits A, B, and C are here, friends, we here today, we can look back on an even greater redemption. The Son of God suffered as our Passover lamb to free us from slavery to sin. Friends, here tonight, we can look back on an even greater provision. We've been adopted into God's family. We've, we've been given his, his word. We've been given leaders to guide us. Friends, here tonight, we can look back on an even greater protection. God has poured out his own spirit on us. He's guaranteeing our future with us. As the jury have listened to all this, they're satisfied that the Lord's righteousness has been proven beyond all reasonable doubt. Heaven and earth bearing witness to it. So friends, tonight, no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult your week has been, and for some of us, this week has made no sense whatsoever from what we've seen in the news. You can still say that God is good. We can still say that God is righteous. Because he wouldn't be God if he weren't. Well, having established the Lord's righteousness, the court now focuses their attention on the people's guilt. It's our second point. If you like, we're going to skip over verses 6 to 8. We're going to return to those in a moment. But I want us to pick us up. Pick it all up in verse 9. So look down with me, verse 9 in your Bibles. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear his name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures, and the short measure which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights, her rich men, are violent. Her people lies, and their tongues speak deceitfully. When I was a kid, I used to love Greek mythology. Did that make me nerdy? Yes. But I love Greek mythology. And you might know something about the Greek deities. They, they, they all lived up a mountain, Mount Olympus, and they were completely unbothered by the everyday goings-on of people's lives. They're only really bothered about pretty women and interesting wars. Other than that, they took no interest whatsoever in people's lives. Well, isn't it reassuring here that God is not like that? No, God sees the micro-dishonesties of the workplace. God hears the whispered corruption of the wealthy. He notices when the poor are crushed under the ambitions of the rich. But here we see in verse 12 that, that Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, the city, that the rot isn't just at the top of society, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. Now it seems as if the whole culture of the city has been infected. The whole culture has become, well, you either control others 
or you're being controlled by others. Which means people have become liars and deceivers. The weak at the bottom, they're lying and deceiving in order to evade the clutches of the powerful. This is scary. God, God isn't addressing here the pagan nations. He's addressing his supposedly holy people, his church. So the judgment in verse 13 is scary. Look down, verse 13. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because what you save, I'll give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You might have heard this phrase. You might have heard it said, the only thing worse than not getting what you want is actually getting it. And so you should be careful what you wish for. And that uh, is certainly what we see here, isn't it? God's people, they've been chasing after power, after wealth, after ease. They've made an idol out of prosperity, out of fertility, out of security. And in God's wisdom, what does he do? He gives them exactly what they want. He hands it over to them. But it will not satisfy. And it doesn't last. You might notice this language here. It's been ripped out of another part of the Bible from Deuteronomy 28. Where God warns Israel that if they turn away from him, he'll send them into exile. He'll send them to Babylon. And then another nation will come and enjoy everything they've worked so hard to achieve. I don't know, maybe, maybe this has been your experience. You know, when, when you take good things in life and then you worship them and you turn them into God things. These idols, they promise so much, don't they? But they deliver so little. So I don't know, you focus so hard on achieving something. But once you've achieved it, you're asking, well, is this it? Or maybe you, you, you try so hard to be someone, to, to enter that inner circle at work. But once you're there, you're still insecure. Or maybe uh, you work so hard to possess something. But once you've got it, and it's in your hands, it doesn't fill that hole in you. Sometimes God's judgment doesn't come with a blazing inferno, but with a whimpering disappointment. This section ends in verse 16 with a rather specific warning aimed at Jerusalem's king, King Hezekiah. Look down, verse 16. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house, and you have followed their traditions. Therefore, I give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. For King Hezekiah to be compared to the very worst kings in northern Israel, that's Ahab and Omri, it's a bit like Theresa May being compared to Hitler. It's got that sort of rhetorical punch to it. It's a subtle way of warning that what happened to the northern kingdom, destruction, is soon to come to Judah in the south because of her sins. So this section here, it ends with us realising... We need a king, but not just any old king, 
We need a shepherd king who's going to lead his people in the way of righteousness. We'll return to that a thought later on. Well, we've seen the Lord's righteousness. We've seen the people's guilt. But you noticed, noticed, we skipped over it a moment ago. Sandwiched in between, we hear the defendant's response. And we'll see from our third point, it is a deluded defense. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. This is Israel speaking. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Remember how the Assyrians were sent by God to wake Israel up, to, uh, to, 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 uh, to turn them back to him. But their response, instead of humility and contrition, is to try and buy God off. You might not know this, but we're soon approaching Saudi supercar season. This is where every June, uh, millionaire, billionaire Arabs, they fly over to London simply to show off their wealth. So, so if you head down to Knightsbridge or, or Chelsea or, or Kensington, places like that, all along the roads, you'll see lined up Lamborghini Aventadors, Ferrari Le Ferraris, these ridiculous six-wheeled, souped-up super jeeps. And, and all of them are tastefully painted gold. It's quite a spectacle, and it's worth, it's worth going to see them, but, but it really, really irritates the locals. Because these Saudis, they tend to pay no attention to parking laws. So these uh, golden monstrosities would be parked over double yellows for weeks, and they'll be in disabled bays. Sometimes they're even blocking over streets, so residents can't get out. It's a nightmare. And a uh, parking ticket, off the parking ticket, is piled on top of them. Almost the windscreen up is sort of bent out of place. But the owners don't care. Because it's easier for them to pay the fines than to obey the law. And that's what Israel think they can do here. They're asking God, all right, God, how much is this going to cost us? Should we start the bidding with a, with a burnt offering? Pretty costly. No? Oh, playing hardball. Let's go, let's up the ante. Let's go for a whole year-old calf. No, okay. Playing hard to get. Well, what if we, what if we everyone, why don't we club in together and go for a thousand rams? Maybe that will appease God's justice. No. Wow, okay. What about 10,000 gallons of olive oil? Still no. What if I sacrifice my firstborn son? Would that satisfy your anger at my sin? It's farcical, isn't it? It's deluded to think that God's justice can be bought like that. But friends, you need to know this is the heart of every single religion. Max Muller was one of the greatest ancient language experts of the 20th century. And he once gave a lecture to a bunch of other experts in his field. And he said this. For 40 years at the University of Oxford, I have carried out my duties as the professor of Sanskrit. I've devoted as much time to the study of the holy books of the East as any other human being in the world. And I venture to tell this gathering that what I have found is that the basic 
the single note of all of these holy books, be it the Veda of the Brahmins, the Quran of the Muslims, the Sendavestra of the Parsis, the one basic note or chord that runs through all of them is salvation by works. They teach that salvation must be bought and that your own works and that your own merits must be the purchasing price. He had then held up his Bible. But our Bible, our sacred book from the East, is from start to finish a protest against that doctrine. And isn't that what we've heard already tonight? We've seen already how God provided a complete and full redemption for his people. For us, if you like, a firstborn has already been offered for our transgression. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of righteousness, the King we need, has already satisfied God's justice at the cross. So how insulting it is for us to think it isn't enough. To think that Jesus' work on the cross, it, it's a, it must somehow be topped up by our own religious deeds. To think that our guilt can be covered by our own generous giving or costly service. It's important, isn't it, that we distinguish between correlation and causation. I'm listening to a podcast at the moment every week called No Such Thing as a Fish. Have you heard of this podcast? There's No Such Thing as a Fish. It's made by the people who, who run QI. And it's full of these sort of interesting facts. And uh, for a long time, you know, so thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, uh, people thought that it was trees which caused the wind to blow. Okay? So they looked outside and they were, oh, wow, look at these trees are swaying all over the place. And they were, oh, it's windy. And they, they put two and two together and they worked out, therefore the trees caused the wind. That was the dominant theory for much of time. They confused correlation with causation. And so do we. Our good deeds don't cause us to be forgiven by God. But our good deeds must correlate with the redemption that God has already won for us. So in verse 8, God's barrister, Micah, he interrupts the deluded defendant. Objection, Your Honour, we can imagine him saying. And this uh, verse 8 is perhaps the most famous verse in the entire book, but it's probably one of the most misunderstood. So look down verse 8, if you'd be so kind. Micah interjects, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, Mike is not stating what we need to do in order to be saved. Rather, he's stating how saved people should live. And God has shown us very clearly, hasn't he, in his word. We don't have one of these sort of mystical religions where we're left guessing at what God wants. He has shown us. And we're told three things here. He wants us to act justly. He wants us to ensure that within the church and within our own spheres of influence, the powerful are not squashing the weak. The wealthy are not dominating the agenda. Leaders are not abusing their positions of power. But more than merely acting justly, God wants us to love mercy. 
and to be a bit like him in, in having a genuine heartfelt affection for his people. To be motivated, not, not out of burden of duty, but, but by the same covenant love that we ourselves have received. But above all, God wants us to walk humbly with him. And so instead of these sort of sporadic visits to the divine emergency room when in a crisis, he desires that we enjoy all of life in, in a healthy communion with him. Now clearly this is not what the city of Jerusalem had been doing. And this verse, if you like, is the last nail in their coffin. The case is closed. They're guilty. And friends, if you've got any humility tonight, you'll put your hand up and say, me too. Me too. So as I close, three very brief bullet point applications. Firstly, listen up. That's been a repeated command throughout this book, isn't it? Listen up. We saw it there in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. We saw it there in verse 9. Listen. And we're told to listen again and again and again because we, we don't want to listen. We think we can evade our guilt by just covering our ears up. We think we can escape judgment simply by keeping busy. We think we can buy his justice with our petty religious efforts. Listen. Heed the rod and the one who holds it. Just like a shepherd would would use his staff to pull a sheep out of a ditch. Well, so God warns us that we might turn back to him. Tonight, will you listen up? But secondly, look back to the Lord's redemption. And as we're going to see in, in in a couple of weeks, the solution to our guilt is not found in us. It's found in him. So in your small groups this week, please spend good time marveling at the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is our Passover lamb, the one who brought us out of slavery to sin. He is the firstborn who willingly offered himself for our transgression. He is the righteous king that we need. Look back. But finally, live out. Live out the Lord's character. We can't dodge this bullet. The Lord doesn't want frenzied religion. He wants a faithful life. He doesn't want empty externalities. He wants internal love. He doesn't want Sunday Christians, but avid disciples. He doesn't want people with just great theology. He wants people who show love justice and covenant kindness so let's pray those that will be what we are let's pray father god we we confess we are guilty and we by nature deserve to be found guilty in your divine law courts but father we praise you for the lord jesus christ We praise you that at the cross he bore that guilty verdict. He was punished in our place in order that we might enjoy your innocence, your righteousness. Father, in response to such amazing grace, help us to listen to Micah here and act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our God. 
And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment's time, we're going to come to the Lord's table to remember together what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. To prepare us, we're going to sing a song. A song of God's grace. It's about what he's done. It's not about what we've done. So together, let's stand and sing.